Biblical wisdom for last day's family tension. I've got a bunch of notes. I'm probably just going to read them and then stop and look at you and expound upon them because I want to stay on target with this, though this is certainly a topic we could go a lot of different directions at once. So let's be clear. First and foremost, family is God's idea. We get it. It's family's design. And the Bible is our blueprint for successful, healthy families. And we've got to lay that foundation because our subject tonight is how do we handle it when family is going crazy or families backslidden Christians or family is apostate Christians and, and how do we handle that? Because we want to love them. Maybe we share DNA with them. Maybe we shared a childhood home with them. Maybe we even grew up going to the house of God together with them and now they've gone weird. How do we reconcile that with family is still God's design? Does that mean we still maintain a family once somebody goes apostate? We're going to answer these questions tonight. We also have to keep in mind what the biblical ideal is from the beginning. So the biblical ideal, the perfect biblical pattern, and we don't all get to enjoy this, but this is what we aim for, and this is certainly what we want to teach the future generation to aim for and not settle for anything less. And I'm very passionate about this because I'm the guy that fixes marriages in private. And I see all the different formulas that produce broken marriages after five years and 10 years and 15 years. So I'm very, I often get bit by sheep over it, but I can see what's going to be a successful marriage and what's going to be hell on earth. But the biblical ideal that we strive for is one father married to one mother raising their children together, whether biological or adopted, doesn't matter to God. And then we raise those babies to fear and serve God. That, Malachi 2, might be fulfilled, which says that God might seek after and obtain godly seed. It's pretty spectacular that God gives us the ability as humans to make humans. We have the ability through biology, through intercourse, through procreation, to create life where two cells come together and God breathes into it the breath of life and it becomes a human being. Not every child is conceived in ideal circumstances, but every breath breathed into that baby is the breath of God and an individual spirit. God's called the father of spirits in the book of Hebrews. Not every child is conceived under ideal circumstances. And I do find it fascinating, yet God still honors the ability to make a sperm, inseminate an egg, and create a human, even if in a test tube, and then put in another person's womb altogether and incubated by a person who now identifies as a man. Ideal, God's will, perfection, one man, one woman, holy matrimony, then they conceive a child and they raise that child in the fear and the admonition of the Lord so that the kingdom advances one generation after the next. When children marry, we're talking about God's blueprint, they leave father and mother and they begin their own household. They might carry on the family name and maybe the family reputation, but they start their own household. And that reputation can change with that new household. They begin a new offshoot. And that new husband, that new wife, they begin an offshoot that they will then answer to God for. And that's okay. I'm prepared to answer to God. I Hopefully, I'm doing things better than my parents were and much better than my grandparents were and far superior than my great-grandparents were. Ideally, grandparents, according to Deuteronomy, they should have some role of godly, and we have to emphasize godly, influence on their grandkids. And we say godly influence because grandparents don't exist to simply spoil. I get there's a permission there. But sometimes grandparents, they may need to lose their grandparenting privileges because they spoil and they don't impart anything worthwhile. So every parent is commanded to teach God's word to their children and to their children's children. So I've taught this before, but let me rewash you with it. If you're a grandparent, there's a biblical mandate on your life. It's one of the mitzvahs, it's one of the Old Testament laws that still carries through the New Testament that your job as a grandparent is to have some kind of interest in your grandkids and not just to spoil them or buy them goodies or sweeties and take them to the movie then send them home hopped up on sugar. 
You should want to be around your grandkids so you can teach them how to pray. Get around your grandkids so you can teach them the testimonies of God that you know. Get around your grandkids so you can have a Bible study with them. And even if you can't do it because it's long distance, we do have the miracle of Zoom or FaceTime now. Your kids, your grandkids ought to know you as a holy grandmother or a holy grandfather. You don't want your, your kids to have to explain to your grandkids why you're absentee when they're 15 and 20 years old. You're supposed to be the patriarch and the matriarch of your legacy and your lineage, so you should step up and invest in the future generation. The dead, dying generation will take care of itself because they'll just die out. It would be a shame, and hear me clearly on this because you're going to have to resolve this with God, be a shame to invest more time in the dying generation than the flourishing generation. And some of you are guilty of that. I'm not saying we ignore the dead generation that's dying because grandma's in a nursing home and she's on a couple tubes. But it would be a shame to spend the last years of your strength consumed of the generation about to be buried in the ground and totally neglect the grandkids that are looking for another role model. So sort that out. I may have to one day myself. Inevitably because, inevitably because of sin, the devil, free will, there will be a breakdown in God's plan for our families. It is then that we will have to obey God's word and not our emotions or culture. If, if we're not careful, we as individuals, we as believers born again, we'll fall victim and slaves to our emotions and our cultural dictates. And both emotions and culture, and we've all come from a different cultural background, which has taught us how to relate to family differently. If we're not careful, we'll be a slave to that rather than a servant to God's word. And you and I need to be thoroughly convinced that God's word is the final arbiter. It's the final decision, the final say in every decision of life. We don't care what mama taught us if it doesn't line up with the word. We don't care what our color or our culture taught us if it doesn't line up with the word. And concerning family, we don't care what family culture or tradition has taught us. We have to go with the word of God. Amen. We have to let the word of God be our final decision. I want to read you a quote uh, from a book. I'm right now working through a book on the systematic theology of the Talmud. The Talmud is basically the commentary of the, the sages and the rabbis in the intertestinal period. It's their commentary on the Torah or the Old Testament. And so this quote here is pretty powerful because it shows you the Jew's heart behind why they fight to keep their culture. This book is called Every Man's Talmud, The Major Teachings of the Rabbinic Sages. So I'm going to read this quote to you, then I'm going to change it up and insert the word Christian into the quotes so that you can understand how we are a continuation of the Old Testament. And this will all relate to our topic, which is biblical wisdom for last day's family tension. History, which is largely a record of the melting of minorities into majorities, records no instance of the survival of a group not segregated in space or not protected by a burning faith as by a frontier of fire. This book, by the way, is 1939. This lesson of history has evidently been discerned by Ezra from the book of Ezra. He understood that the Jews could not be utterly segregated in space, just like we Christians cannot be completely isolated from the world around us. Not only were there branches of the national tree of Israel in Egypt, Babylon, and Persia to be taken into consideration, but contact between the Jews in Judea and their neighbors could not be avoided. If then the Jewish nation was to be preserved, it must be ringed about by, quote, a burning faith as by a frontier fire, unquote, a most thorough metaphor since the Bible itself speaks of a fiery law. The Jew then must have a religion which would not only continually distinguish him from the heathen, but would likewise be a constant reminder to him that he was a member of the Jewish race and faith. The Jew was to be demarcated from his neighbors, not merely by a creed, but by a mode of living. His manner of worship would be different. His home would be different. Even the common acts of daily life, 
even in those acts, there would be distinguishing features which were constantly, excuse me, which would constantly recall his Jewishness. His life in every detail was to be controlled by Torah, by the written enactments of the Mosaic Code and their development in the corporate life of the people as the altered conditions demanded change. So let me reread that and insert Christian and Bible there because we have the same conviction. A lot of what Paul wrote about in the Corinthians is a rehash of this mindset. So let me read this passage to you again, but with the word Christian, because this is going to tie into how we deal with family in these weird days. If then the body of Christ was to be preserved, it must be ringed about by a burning faith as by a frontier fire. A most fitting metaphor since the Bible itself speaks of a fiery law. The Christian must then have a religion which would not only continually distinguish him from the heathen, but would likewise be a constant reminder to him that he was a member of the body of Christ and of the faith of Jesus. The Christian was to be demarcated from his neighbors, not merely by creed, but by a mode of living. The Christian's manner of worship must be different. His home must be different. Even the common acts, in those common acts of his daily life, there would be a distinguishing feature which would constantly recall his Christianity. His life in every detail is to be controlled by the Bible, by the written enactments of the law of God and their development in the corporate life of the body of Christ as the altered conditions around him demand change. So I like that quote. Because it lets us know why the Jews were so stick, such sticklers for the, the Talmud or the Torah. And at the same time, we should have the same conviction that no matter what goes on, no matter what weird kid has what weird grandbaby, I'm going to stick with the word of God. Okay? Let us begin with broad warnings. Then we are going to home in on situational specifics. So we got to talk about what Jesus said about our families. So let's, we're going to stay probably mostly in Matthew chapter 10. So turn there real quick. Probably not real quick. Turn there quickly, but we're going to stay there longly. <laughs> Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. Ah, verse 33. Whosoever shall then shall defy, uh, deny me before men, him will I also deny me before my father, which is... In heaven. So that's a pretty harsh way to start off a statement. If you deny me, the Lord says, I'm going to deny you. You deny me before men, I'm going to deny you before my Father. So that kind of sets the sample or the stage for what the Lord's about to teach his disciples, and that's us. That no matter what we do, we don't deny the Lord Jesus. Not to anybody. Not to aunts, uncles, cousins, nieces, nephews, in laws, outlaws, step parents, stepchildren. It doesn't matter. We're going to be bold about our faith. We're born again. We're spirit-filled. We're tongue talkers. We're holy. We're clean. If you don't like it, go away. I'm not changing for you. I change for God. Huh. Verse 34. Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. What? I thought that's what the angel said. Peace on earth. Goodwill toward men. Actually, King James is a horrible translation there in Luke. Peace on earth towards those God favors. <laughs> Think not that I've come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. So now, if we're going to walk with Jesus, there's going to be a continual dividing going before us. It's a sword that goes before us and divides things. Verse 35. For I have come to set a man at variance against his father. Wait a minute. So one of the callings of Jesus is to divide the very thing? He ordained from the book of Genesis. Think about that doctrinal conflict. This is God speaking, saying, I am come. Kind of like I've come to heal, I've come to teach, come to deliver. One of his callings he's revealing here is, I am come to set a man at variance against his father. And I've come to set the daughter against her mother. And I've come that the daughter-in-law be set against her mother-in-law. Now, that's not on a carnal level. That's not father and son fighting because they're carnal. It's not daughter-in-law and mother-in-law fighting because they're carnal. It's Jesus Christ making a division in a home because someone in that equation has walked with Christ and the other has walked away from Christ. When Jesus walks through a family, he will divide a family. 
Not everybody in every lineage is going to be born again. And not everybody in a born-again household will serve God the same. And there will be tension because one will serve God this way and another will serve God that way. These are the words of the God who instituted family and spoke all the laws of parental honor, marital love, authority, and submission into being. These are the words of our God who said, honor thy father and mother, love your wife as Christ loves the church, submit to your mom and dad, care for your children. And yet he says, but I have come to bring a division in the household. Now, if that's the word of Christ, we have to be prepared for it. And as we said, coming out of Thanksgiving, a lot of us have noticed that since we were with our corporate larger extended family before, there's a greater gulf between where we are with God and where some of them are now. And it's because even if you're from a Christian family, the great falling away is occurring in every church in the world. And some of our extended family members are caught up with that. In my own extended family, and I have a large family on both sides of my parents, I've got some folks who've come to Christ after years of debauchery. I've got, I've got family members that have just now come into Pentecost in their 30s and 40s, and now they're raising their kids in Pentecost, which is awesome. My family doesn't know what to do about it to some degree. But 20 years ago, they were having affairs left and right and getting drunk every weekend. So in that regard, hey, praise God, I can probably see we're going to become closer family members. And then in the same family, the McMichael clan, extended Richardson clan, We've got folks that were serving God 20 years ago that are now shacking up, sleeping around, turning to the world. And so I can see that with those family members, there's going to be a variance. And since 1990, I rededicated in 95. Since 1995, I may be that and my dad and my mom, we may be the most consistent Christians and my cousin Phil. We may be the most consistently Christ-serving Christians on both sides because we just keep trucking, doing the same thing we know to do. And it's funny because in our own testimony, we've seen family members do this behind us, some going towards God, some pulling away. At some point, you're going to go towards or away, and there won't be any time to repent and go the other direction. If the Lord Jesus says he brings division to a home, we have to be prepared. How we serve God will automatically control the distance between us and the people around us. And please listen to that. How you and I serve God, the intensity of our commitment, devotion, zeal, holiness, righteousness, prayer life, sacrifice, it's going to automatically, without us doing anything, adjust our proximity to people in our lives. If we serve God closely, it's going to put us in close proximity to holy, righteous people. If we backslide and go worldly, it will remove us from holy people and put us into close proximity with pagans. That's how Jesus brings a variance into a household. Christians that fervently and consistently serve God will be pulled apart from Christians that are lukewarm and peripheral. The Bible says, how can two walk together except they be in agreement? As you and I go up and family members go down in their walk with God, it's going to pull us apart. It's like if you ever play on escalators. We used to do it as kids, probably still do it as adults. And you're going to ride the escalator going up. And let's say your kid brother, he stands here and you hold hands. And he walks forward with you as you're going up. Before long, in order to stay connected, people have to contort. He has to contort upward, and if I'm going up on the escalator, I have to contort going downward just so we can stay connected. But the movement is inevitable, and it's unstoppable. At some point, I will either have to lean over and pull him up, which puts me in a weird position, or I'll be pulled off, or he'll let go. But either way, that movement is separating us. If we liken that escalator to the upward calling of Christ, then we need to be reminded again, we don't have permission to lower our walk with Christ to slow down for anybody. We don't have permission to come off the wall like Nehemiah. 
Nehemiah was called of God to go build the kingdom of God, to build the wall around Jerusalem. And he was tempted by a half-breed, a Samaritan. His name was Sanballat. He's a half-breed. Sanballat acts like he's interested in helping to build the kingdom, but he really isn't. What he really wants to do is to get Nehemiah to come off that wall and compromise his calling in his obedience to God Almighty. So in one famous showdown there in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah shakes his fist at his half-breed brother. Why are they called half-breeds? Well, the Samaritans were part Jew in their DNA and part Assyrian, not even a fully Assyrian. The Assyrians, when they conquered the world during the Assyrian Empire, they brilliantly would go and scatter and go conquer. They would take the defeated enemies and bring them in and intermarry them with other territories. And by doing that, a people lost its identity and its culture and he broke down the morale and they allowed the, uh, the empire to expand and there was no threat of uprisal or coup because you no longer have a national identity. Same thing is going on in the nation right now. Marxism wants to break down our national identity because if we have no identity, we're easy, easy pickings. It's, it's an old military technique. We're just doing it through academia and social media now. So when the Assyrians conquered and they brought folks down and they conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, they brought down the slaves of other empires and they inhabited northern Israel with those slaves. And those defeated foes intermarried with the remaining Jews of the northern kingdom and they became half-breed, half Jewish, half whatever. But the other thing they did that we're watching our extended families do is they mix Judaism with pagan religion. And that's called syncretism. You're trying to synchronize two things that will never mix. And so the Samaritans had some knowledge of the law, some knowledge of Moses, some knowledge of the prophets, some knowledge of the Messiah, but they also mixed it in with a lot of paganism because they weren't pure. That's what Sanballat was. He was a Samaritan. He was a half-breed. He acts like he's interested in helping Nehemiah. He just wants Nehemiah to come off that wall. And Nehemiah, thankfully, he, he makes this giant proclamation. He says, you listen to me, you little half-breed. That's probably more my translation. He said, you have no right, nor portion, nor inheritance, nor a lot in this city. And I will not come off this wall to be any part of you. And so he rebukes them. And we have to understand that some of what's going on are half-breed Christians in our families maybe trying to talk us off our wall. And we don't have permission to come off the kingdom's calling, the kingdom's standard, to go entertain Christians who've mixed paganism in with their mediocre Christianity. All this is is the book of Nehemiah playing over again at Thanksgiving dinner or at Christmas. We don't have a permission from God to fall for it. If Nehemiah had come off that wall, God would replace them. And I don't want to be replaced. I want to finish my race. Maybe we can come up with one of those cool rhyming TBN things. Either finish your race so you'll be replaced. Or don't be replaced so you can finish your race. Verse 36. A man's foes shall be they of his own household. That doesn't feel good. A man's foes shall be they of his own household. So we don't have to worry about enemies on the job or enemies at the university or enemies in the neighborhood. The promise, the promise, remember we're word of faith. We like those promises of God. The promise of God is that our enemies shall be in our home. Now this word enemy, foes, King James, enemy, other translations, is this word ektros, Ektros, and I'm going to use it a lot just so we can distinguish it. Because we need to understand this Greek concept of ektros. Ektros means to be hateful. Ektros means to be odious or contentious. Ektros means to be hostile, belligerent. It's a constant humming of opposition. Ektros is the enemy of God. Ektros is someone who opposes God in their mind. So let's insert those words here in verse 36. Jesus says, a, men, a man's hostility, a man's opposition, a man's belligerent foe will arise from his own household. 
Someone opposing God in their own mind will arise in our household. Now, what we need to do if we're younger families and we're still at home raising our kids, we've got to say, bless God, as for me and my house, we serve the Lord. And I'm teaching my kids. I'm paying attention to them. I'm not letting an iPad parent them. I'm not letting the neighbor kid parent them. I'm going to parent them. I'm not going to let the public school have their soul. I have their soul. We've got to make sure in our heart that we're praying, Father, may my children always serve you. May they always submit to you. May they bring me everything. May they trust you with their heart. But we got this promise here that says hostility shall arise in our household. That's, that's the whole gamut of our family. There are some people we are commanded to count as ectros, and we're to treat them accordingly. And this is where we have to be very careful in how we handle the family tension of the last days. There are those within our extended families that will be pagans or backslidden, but they're not hostile. If they're not hostile, if they're not humming with hostility or opposition, if they're not hateful or odious, they don't have to be born again uh, to be your friend or ally. I've got pagan family members that are probably more for me than some of my born-again family members. So this isn't a matter so much of being born again or not born again. This is all about hostility. This is all about opposition. This is all about being belligerent. That's what makes an enemy an enemy. They can be born again and become an enemy of the cross. They can be born again and become an enemy of your peace. They can be born again and become an enemy of your joy. They can be born again and become an enemy of your marriage. You got to make sure you resist this. So uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, let me give you a verse there. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, it says this, verse 14. If any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man. Mark him. That's a common theme in the New Testament. Mark people. And have no company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet count him not as an enemy. So here we have someone who is disobedient, but we're not to count this person as an enemy. But the reason they're not an enemy is because we're able to admonish him as a brother. So we're to mark people that don't obey the epistles, but we're not to fellowship with them. So we have this kind of uh, split road here. We have this crossroad, and we can have an enemy or not an enemy. Just because you disobey the scriptures doesn't make you an enemy of the church or the enemy of the cross. But at that crossroad, depending on their attitude, we either count them as an enemy and treat them as such, or we don't. So how do we decide if they're an enemy or not? Are we able to correct them? Are we able to rebuke them? Either way, if they're disobedient to the epistles, the scriptures say we have no fellowship with them. If they are disobedient to the epistles, and by that we mean not ignorantly disobedient, just willfully disobedient, we mark them and we have no fellowship. If you can't correct a brother in Christ and say, hey, man, why don't you come in line with the word of God? Why are you fellowshipping with them? Our fellowship's in the light. Now, I know why we do it. It's because we're, we're like, it's my family. Again, if they're hostile, you've got to put them at arm's distance. If they're belligerent, you've got to put them at arm's distance. This verse informs us that we are to have no company with consistently disobedient believers that they might feel ashamed because shame might bring them to repentance. Furthermore, if we can correct that backslider and they receive it, we are not to count them as an ekthros. We're not to count them as an enemy. We treat them as a brother, but it's a brother we can't fellowship with. The, uh, the inf uh, inference here, or that the, what's inferred here is that there are some we must count as ekthros and then adjust our treatment of them. But what if they resist our correction? It's hard to fellowship with somebody who doesn't want to fellowship around our God, especially when they consider themselves a Christian. So what makes someone an enemy has everything to do with attitude. Again, I, I've got family members and even friends that are backslidden. They're pagans. They're drunkards. They might fornicate, but they respect that I'm a Christian. They respect I'm a preacher. 
They respect my zeal. They respect my holiness. And they dial it back when they're around me to show honor. There's a sick, twisted problem in our extended family members when they know we're holy, they know we're clean, they know we fear God, and they don't want to honor us enough to just dial back their sin just a little bit. There's a selfish, hostile perversion in their sin. Even the mafia respects the Catholic Church. I would hope even the pagan would respect the Christian at Thanksgiving dinner. There's a sick kind of rebellion in a Christian who won't dial back their sinful rhetoric at the Christmas dinner table uh, for the Christians that are sitting there. What's the lack of respect? That's an enemy, and you mark them as such. Attitude is what turns a backslidden Christian from prodigal to enemy. Attitude, hostile attitude, is what turns a backslidden Christian from prodigal to enemy. A loved one can be backslidden without being hostile toward you, your God, your church, your faith. This is someone we can somewhat fellowship with that we might restore. But even then, we've got to really limit our fellowship. We cannot pacify or negotiate with those that are ekthros, so those that are hostile, belligerent enemies. According to Scripture, they are prone. This is what the Bible says of this word ekthros. All these Scriptures you can think of, ekthros, they're prone to cursing us. Pray for those enemies that curse you. So an ekthros is one who curses you. They mock you. They ridicule you. They send you hostile texts. They manipulate you with hostile texts. That is an ekthros. That is an enemy that God calls an enemy that the Bible admonishes us on how to treat. And if we don't obey the scriptures and how we treat enemies, God's hand will be turned against us. And I know the argument is, what about love? God's word is love in action. Quit being a moron loving the way weird Americans do. We love according to God's definition of love. And if God's love says, put them out, have no fellowship, mark them and shun them that they might be ashamed, then that's the love of God in action. Not some weird mama who's still breastfeeding her grown kids because she's weird. We love with the love of God, the same love that made a whip, the same love that rebukes, the same love that corrects, the same love that says, woe unto you. That's the same love that dies to redeem. We got to stop being so pathetically American in our family love. We have to obey scripture because if we love God, we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not grievous when you're mature. When you're immature, it's so hard. <laughs> we cannot pacify or negotiate with those that are ekthros. According to scripture, they are prone to cursing us, despitefully using us. You know, Ekthros will send you a text to manipulate you. They'll send you a picture to manipulate you. They'll go around you to manipulate you. These are people we mark and we totally cut off until they repent. If you feed them, if you house them, if you clothe them, your God will be against you. Ekthros are those that sow tares in the wheat fields of our life. Remember the Lord's parable said, mine enemy, my ekthros hath done this. You gotta be careful because sometimes those family members will sow tares into the rest of our family's harvest. They'll go to aunts and uncles, they'll get on social media and all they're doing is using their wicked words to sow tares into the wheat field that is our family. That's an enemy. You are to mark them and have nothing at all to do with them if you want to stay right with God. And the promise is if you'll mark them and shun them, they will be ashamed. And when they are ashamed, they'll repent. But as long as they think they can control you because you're not controlled by God, you're going to be led by them. They'll become your God and you get to have your God's reward and your God's hand of provision and your God's hand of peace and your God's hand of joy and your God's hand of help. There's no family member on planet earth worth that to me. This type of person will quickly move towards becoming the ekthros of the cross of Christ. Paul said in Philippians 3, let's look at that verse. Verse 17. Brethren, be followers together of me and mark them which walk so as you have us for an example. For many walk 
of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies, the ekthros, of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things, for our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we have, uh, also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So here in this verse 17, it says, Mark them which walk so as you have us for an example. So this, this brings into us, uh, presents to us a new concept, a new doctrine that we should look at briefly. The Bible is all about marking and judging. Now that's not very woke. It's not very politically social justice minded, but the Bible tells us to mark people like Paul so we can follow them and to mark people who are like Satan so we can avoid them. Romans 16, 17 says, mark them that cause division and offenses contrary to sound doctrine and have no fellowship with them. Actually, it says shun them. Here it says, mark them that walk like Paul and follow them. So let me ask you, who are you supposed to mark and how are you supposed to treat them? Because what I'm observing in our church, in this fellowship, I'm watching some families mark people opposite of Scripture and then treat them opposite of Scripture. You're not marking the holy, the godly, the just, the upright, and following them. You're marking pagans, backsliders, and enemies of the cross, and you're following them. We, regardless of how we live life, we're marking somebody to follow and somebody to shun. Folks come to a hard-hitting church like ours, they mark me and shun me. And they'll go to some limp-wristed, sheep-thieving panty waist preacher, they'll mark him and follow him. And what do you think the end result of that be for their life and their marriage and their kids and their business? You and I need to be careful that we don't mark pagan children to follow and mark pastors and elders as, as hindrances and get offended at them because they have a higher standard than our pathetic family does and shun the high standard. I've learned this as a pastor, so listen very carefully. I stand in this office that God has called me to to lead God's people. And for most folks called to this church, I become a litmus test. I become the thermopylae, the hot gates through which you must pass to find your destiny. Now, this, this has only recently dawned upon me, but I have seen it played out in my own life. When I was in this church as a 19-year-old to 22-year-old, my whole destiny, apart from doing the scriptures, getting a good degree, being led by the Holy Spirit, my destiny was all in how I treated Pastor Vaughn and received from him. He was Thermopylae. That's the hot gates. That, that's where King Leonidas withstood Xerxes at the Battle of 300, which is really more like 8,000. But anyway, beginning of the overthrow that Daniel prophesied about the fall of the Persian Empire, that happened at Thermopylae. Xerxes had to pass through the hot gates if he wanted to take on Sparta. Not White County Sparta, the real Sparta. I'm sure they said Yurt too, but they all died. When I moved from here to Knoxville, my destiny had to pass through a man named Darren Osborne. He was my pastor. He was my next set of hot gates. When he moved out to Oregon to start his next church and he turned the church over to Pastor Trey Jones, that became my next set of hot gates. And I had to submit to that man and serve that man and catch that man's heart and help that man. And my destiny was catapulted through those hot gates. And then I went to Indy and it was Pastor Tim Krause. And then I came back here and it was Pastor Kenny Vaughn again. Pastors become a sort of hot gates that if you want to be catapulted in the kingdom, you got to pass through them because you can't attack me, get offended at me, slander me, run me down, and your life be propelled. You can't do it. So some of you, you mark me and you criticize me when you mark morons in your life and you follow them. And I'm trying to give you biblical wisdom for handling family strife in these last days. It doesn't do you any well to get mad at me. I didn't ask for the responsibility of your soul, but seeing as how some of you really stink at life, you might do well to listen more and criticize less. 
I've taught you for years. Mark those that are doing better than you and ask them how they got there. Because some of you still meal about going nowhere in life and you're pushing 30 and you got nothing to show for it. All right. It's come out a little bit punchier than I thought it would. It's just me and two cameras in here right now and some moron who keeps knocking on the window over here that's distracting me. <laughs> I hope it's not a package I'm missing right now. Here's how we can tell the ekthros that are the enemies of the cross. He says in verse 18, or verse 19, their belly is their God. They serve what they want, when they want, as they want. They glory in shameful things. They're not penitent. They're consumed of earthly things, as it says. They mind earthly things. And their end will be destruction. When you see somebody's life breaking apart, you don't follow that person. You mark them and stay away from them. If their life's falling apart, why would you go near that? If their kids are weird, if their marriage is weird, if their home is weird, if their money's weird, why would you fellowship with that? You got to mark that and be, be very cautious. He, Paul says, by contrast in verse 20, our lifestyle's in heaven. You can see how those people live. Our lifestyle's in heaven. So mark those whose lifestyle is heavenly and have nothing to do with those whose lifestyle will end in destruction. Lifestyles indicate whose friend we are and whose enemy we are. And we want to make sure we maintain the friendship and the allyship and the allegiance to Christ. We want to make sure the enemy knows we're his enemy and he's not our buddy. Coming back to Matthew chapter 10, verse 37. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus told his disciples at this point, it's possible for you to be unworthy. It's possible. Now, we know we're not worthy. He makes us worthy, but it's still a statement of truth. If you're going to love mommy and love daddy more than Jesus, you're not worthy of Jesus. And it says, and if you love your son or your daughter more than me, you're not worthy of me. Wow. He didn't even go so far as to touch about grandchildren. We might add, because it's, it's the projection in this verse, and if you love your grandchildren more than you love the standard of Christ, you're not worthy of Christ. It's amazing. Folks will sacrifice Jesus to be around grandkids, but they won't sacrifice grandkids to be around Jesus. Hmm. This verse stands in opposition to the fifth commandment, which says, honor thy father and mother. Honor does not always involve obedience or conformity. You can honor your mother if she was a hooker drug addict dying of syphilis in a VA clinic somewhere. You can honor her by praying for her. But if you were to go and visit her and she's not penitent, she's going to ask you for some weird favors because she's a sinner. You can't honor any of those favors or requests. You can honor her by praying for her salvation and penitence. Sometimes there will be circumstances that demand that we as children love and honor our parents from a far distance. Maybe it's our children we have to honor from a far distance. Maybe it's grandkids we have to honor from a far distance. Hopefully you're catching the heart of this. We can't allow pagans and culture and demons to talk us into violating our God simply because of shared DNA. Just because we shared a childhood home doesn't mean I owe you anything. Honestly, just because I appreciate you putting me through college and buying me a car and putting food in my stomach till I was 22. But if you backslide, I can't fellowship with you. I'll pray that you repent so we can have fellowship again. Why is it we always come down and we don't ever expect them to come up? Why are we the ones that backslide for fellowship but they won't repent to fellowship? Because it's not important to them. They're of their father, the devil, and they're interested in defiling you. You ought to be more interested in bringing them up. God does not expect his servants to hurt their spouse or children for the sake of grandma especially if she's become an ekthros of righteousness. The Lord only commanded us to pray for our enemies. It's not the will of God we submit ourselves to the abuse and misuse of enemies. The same law applies to children. Even if they're grown, church prodigals can be especially wicked 
and manipulative. Listen to me, because this is our church. We have at least four, maybe five uh, prodigal scenarios in our church. Church-raised prodigals can be especially wicked and deceptive because they know the lingo, they know the doctrine, they know the church culture, they know our convictions, they know that we're people of conviction, and they'll manipulate that for their own gain. They throw God's doctrine at us, expecting us to obey the doctrine they don't intend to obey, but they know that they can hook us with it. But when we remind them of the same doctrine or a similar doctrine or the doctrine they're disobeying, they recoil in anger and self-righteousness. When they say, you know, Dad, if you love me, you'd really help me because I'm your kid. And I said, you know, son, if you love Jesus, you'd repent and quit fornicating like a rabbit. Well, how dare you judge me? Anybody ever see that scenario play out? You know, Mom, if you love me, you let me come over. And you say, honey, you know, if you love God, you'd come to the house of God. Oh, you're just trying to control me. What do you think you're trying to do, you dimwit? When, when they want to use the law of God against us to manipulate us, and we present it back to them, and they recoil in hostility, such a person is possessed of the spirit of lawlessness. Lawlessness wants everybody else to obey all the laws, but they themselves are exempt from it. This person is to be marked and avoided and shunned. For some believers, we should read verse 38. He talks about your enemies being of your home. You got to love your father and mother less than Jesus. Love your son and daughter less than Jesus. He that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. For some believers, the loss of family will be a cross they have to bear. Now, I, I hate to break it to us. Some of us have already lost family to the world. And it was a cross that wasn't so hard to bear. For some of you, if you're going to serve Jesus, if you're going to be counted worthy of our Lord Jesus Christ, to fellowship with him and to finish your calling in your race, you've got to be willing to bear the cross of family loss. Jesus did it. Remember? Hey, master, your mother and your brother are out here for, waiting for you. They, they want to talk to you. While the Lord Jesus is busy serving his father, and Jesus said, who is my mother and who are my brethren but those that do the will of my father? Jesus Christ had to on the way to his cross, bear the cross of family abandonment and betrayal. But because he stayed faithful and kept his eyes on his heavenly father, he was able to look at his mother at Calvary and commend her into discipleship and protection and the defense of John the Revelator. Only because I believe Jesus stayed faithful to his heavenly father did Mary come full circle. And you and I, what, what we want to try to help God we take our eyes off the Lord Jesus Christ and expect that we can save our kids or our parents or our brother. Can't do it. You and I are committed to Jesus. We don't come off the wall to play games with Sandballot. I don't care if you guys went to school together or you came out of the same womb together. Grandbabies make for wonderful demon bait, and they're awfully useful, manipulative pry bars. Grandbabies, whoo, you want to see a useless human being? Look at a grandparent when they hold that first grandbaby. Oh, man, because <laughs> they think all the fun, none of the responsibility. I've never been a grandparent yet, but all my friends that have become grandparents say, yeah, it makes you just about useless. Grandbabies become wonderful demon bait. Don't you love your grandbaby? Don't you love me? Don't, don't you want to have fellowship with your grandbaby? Don't, don't you want them to know you? I, I tell you what's interesting in our church. This is how we, <laughs> this is the burden of pastoring. I've got grandparents in this church who aren't interested in their grandkids that are in this church. And the whole family's supposed to be in fellowship with God. And then I got grandparents in this church whose kids are grossly backslidden and they're tripping over themselves to deny Christ to be around the grandbaby. That goes on in this little church. <laughs> and I wish the grandparents whose kids were in fellowship with God would take more of an interest in their grandkids and those whose kids are 
backslidden and enemies of the cross would not be so stupid and weak as to be manipulated by a baby. Would you deny Christ for a baby? All right, Matthew 10, 39. Boy, this is ripping it up. Maybe I should have let Dr. Cephas teach. He that findeth his life shall lose it. and He that loses his life for my sake shall find it. If your heart is soft, your family is your life, and that's a good thing. I would say my wife is my life. I would say my kids are my life. For me, the cost now of going out of town is no longer financial. It's no longer a matter of safety. For me, the cost is, is losing time with my wife and kids because it's time I'll never get back. It's not like soccer where I get overage time at the end of my ministry. When I go overseas, it's two weeks of my kid's life I'll never get back. It's two weeks I'll never get to spend with my wife again. And that's important to me because my kids are my life, as, as my wife is. In the context, though, of these previous verses, the Lord Jesus is using our understanding that our family is our life to pull the rug out from underneath his disciples and to prepare us that there may come a time when we must be willing to lose that life. I've got preacher friends whose kids are prodigals and they've had to completely write them off. And in that regard, they had to lose their life that they might find the life of Christ. I've also seen Christians compromise God to fellowship with prodigals who they'll probably end up helping go to hell because they didn't treat them as a prodigal. Let me reiterate to you one more time because some of you are really thick-skulled and dim-witted. If you want the prodigal to return, you have to treat them like a prodigal. Go read Luke 15. Quit forcing me to have to preach it at you over and over again. When the prodigal goes away, he has no contact with his family and no support from them. That's what brings him to his senses. Sneaking text messages, sneaking meetings is not helping your prodigal repent. It's helping them go to hell. Because they realize you're weaker in your Christian faith than they are in their sin. There comes a time when, according to verse 39, we may have to lose our life if we want to find eternal life. When does this happen? Well, when the family member becomes an enemy of the cross. When that loved one becomes an enemy of righteousness, you have to lose that part of your life. Jesus said, he that finds his life shall lose it, and he that loses his life for my sake shall find it. Remember, Peter said, Lord, we've, we've forsaken fathers and mothers and sisters and brothers. We have forsaken lands and houses. What then? He says, Jesus says, there's not any that hasn't forsaken that shall not in this life and that which is to come receive a hundredfold. There's a promise of better family. We're just so consumed with biology and the childhood memories. And I don't diminish that. But we let Jesus pick who our family is. And our family is those we serve God with. This means that maybe to lose your life, you may never get to share life again or get to know that grandbaby. To lose your life may mean you never get to know that grandbaby. Jesus promised if we find our lives, we'll lose it. But if we will walk willing, or if we we'll willingly give up our life for his sake, then we will find true life. And I add, isn't, isn't the Christian walk all about giving up things for Christ's sake? 2 Timothy 2.20, one or two more verses here. I'm going to start to kind of land this message. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20. In a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Remember, we said, what makes a backslidden family member an enemy? Attitude. When they begin to act dishonorable, you and I are obligated to rebuke and correct. When my nieces were disrespectful to adults at Thanksgiving, or when my own kids were disrespectful and dishonorable, I've got no problem thumping and rebuking that. I've got no problem thumping or rebuking anybody who's dishonorable. You and I need to grow a backbone and a voice. Some of you men need to be reminded you have testicles. And you're supposed to use them not just to grow a family, but to remind yourself you're the head of the family. 
Attached to your testicles is a spine. You should grow one of those too. And at the end of your spine is a voice. Flex that from every once in a while and from time to time. And let the demon realm and your family know who's in charge. And be the voice and the mouthpiece of God. Amen. Pull the slack out of your family. Command things. It's how you're designed to be. Don't be emasculated. Some of you are just like teeth on a jellyfish body, trying to figure out why your marriage is horrible and your family's weird. Dishonorable vessels in a great house. What if that's our personal family? Let's put the McMichaels in there. In a great house, in the McMichael household, there are vessels of gold and silver, some wood earth, some to honor, some to dishonor. If therefore someone in my household will purge themselves from the dishonorable vessels, maybe, maybe one, of my sibling, one of my kids needs to pull away from the other sibling. We move away from dishonor. It's not hard to spot. If it's dishonorable, move away from it. And as you move away from it, rebuke it. And if you have to block people, block people. You'd at least be more biblical than you are today because blocking someone on the phone is equivalent to Romans 16, 17 saying, shun them, mark them, have nothing to do with them. Maybe change their name to Romans 16, 17 so you'll be reminded to not answer and block. Some of you are sinning against your God by placating sinful pagans. And you wonder why blessings are far from you and your life is in greater turmoil than ever. I'm gonna read this to you out of the New Living Translation. If you'll keep yourself pure, you will be a special utensil for honorable use. I want that. I want to be a special utensil for honorable use. Your life will be clean and you will be ready for the master to use you for every good work. That's 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 21 in the New Living Translation. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 says, withdraw, don't seek fellowship. 1 Timothy 6 says, withdraw, don't seek fellowship. We're talking about biblical wisdom for dealing with weird family strife of the last days. So let me give you some practical thoughts, and I'm done with Scripture. You and I are going to have to get bolder. And as I told you, even some of our Christian extended family, they're not serving God as fervently as they once were. And if we're doing what we ought to do, we're serving God more fervently. And so the gulf between us gets broader and broader and broader. And they don't show any signs of repenting. And we're not going to repent either because we're getting worse for Jesus. We'll become yet even more vile. So here's, here's some practical thoughts. Number one, we must be clear and bold about our doctrine, our stance, our commitment to Christ as if they didn't already know. Offer to pray over the dinners. Offer to pray over the meals and be bold about it. Not belligerent, just bold. Talk about Holy Ghost church services. Hey, cuz, what have you been into? Man, we had this awesome Holy Ghost church service. <laughs> Holy Ghost was moving. Tongues were talking. People were falling out. People were getting delivered. We got these druggies coming in. They went from booze to weed to meth to no teeth. Man, they were methed up, but God gave them some teeth. Kind of subtly tell them, you're a boozer. Hope you have a good dental plan. Be bold about your doctrine. Don't be a coward. Doctrine's how you live. It's not just what you write down in your notebook. Number two, we must not be afraid to rock the boat and answer the tension produced by sinful family members. I'm not saying go to family reunion looking forward to a fight, but don't be a coward either. Don't be afraid to rock the boat. Answer the tension. Answer the tension. Be a peacemaker. If there's tension, there's no peace. If there's tension, shutting your mouth keeps the peace. That's not peace. We're called to make the peace. We make peace by calling out sin. Remember, they are probably more vocal and more committed to their sin than we are committed to our doctrine. So we got to repent of that. Don't be snookered. They're stronger in their sin than we are in our righteousness. Number four, keep in mind hostility determines fellowship proximity. If they're super hostile, we're super distant. If they're peaceful, if they're kind, 
have all sorts of fellowship with them. In my engineering career, I work with a lot of Muslims. They were not hostile to my faith. They were interested. I was interested to know how they believed. We had wonderful fellowship, a pagan and a believer. I'm still in fellowship with uh, one of my former Muslim co-workers and an atheistic Hindu former co-worker. Still text and chat on the phone from time to time. They know I'm a pastor. They know I'm a preacher. They know I'm a Christian. They're not offended. You can have beautiful fellowship with pagans because they're not hostile. And you can absolutely cut off a child because they're a belligerent, backslidden pagan of a former tongue talker because they're hostile and full of sin. Hostility determines proximity. Corinthians says, what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? Also remember, filth and corruption dictate fellowship proximity. If they're super filthy, vile, and nasty, you're not going to be able to fellowship anywhere near that. Because what corruption, excuse me, what communion has light with darkness? Final two points. Remember, practical thoughts. We are not permitted to finance sin. We don't send money to the prodigal or the baby. We don't finance sin. Because we reap where we sow. Where you send money will bring things back to you. Final point. We must protect our families from the subtle defilement eroding away at the fabric of society. The head of every household must set the tempo and standard and ensure that everyone under them is on the same page. Now, unless you've had testicular cancer, men, you still have two gonads. They determine, <laughs> these are supposed to, your masculinity. We have all sorts of vulgar figures of speech to determine how masculine a man is depending on his testicles. To those set of testes is attached a spine, not actually, but you get what I'm saying. You're supposed to have a backbone too, man. And at the top of that spine is a voice whereby you lead, you command your family, your household. You make decrees and declarations. You adjudicate justice in your home and you declare what you will and won't stand for. My kids are of the learning age that when we come away from family reunions, we have debriefing discussions. And I'm very open with my kids about it because they've already got questions. They're super smart. And we troubleshoot and we judge everybody in my family, from my dad to my mom to my brother to my sister-in-law to cousins to nieces to grandparents. We talk about them all because my job is to teach my kids the law of Moses and the commandments of Paul and the Lord Jesus Christ. So they're judging things pretty accurate. Sometimes I might say, Lyd, what would happen if what happened today took place in our home? <laughs> Her eyes always get real big. Oh, Daddy, no, 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 uh-uh. I said, yep. It's because we fear God. And I'm so proud of you, sweetie, that you can tell it's not right. But I command my home. I have a voice. My wife is my best disciple. My kids are one, two, and three after that. That should be your testimony, man. We are to find peace and pursue it. We're to make sure we can resolve biblical tension or a biblical, uh, find biblical wisdom for the, the tension that arises. And, and please hear me out. There will come a time where you won't be able to do some, some of you, some of us, maybe me. We won't be able to do family reunions like we used to. We just have nothing in common anymore. And that's okay. Not ultimately, but it's okay if we can't go. We got to be able to speak up and say, I'm sorry, this just isn't working. I got too much light. There's too much darkness. We got to separate ways here. I want to keep your families clean. We want everybody to go to heaven. We want everybody in our family to go to heaven. Be awesome to have a family reunion in heaven, and it's all our last name, but it ain't going to happen. We can protect those under our roof, and we must. We must pray fervently. We pray for those that have become enemies, we pray that they repent. We pray for mom and dad, even if they're druggies in a nursing home somewhere. But you and I have got to keep in mind, God has not called us to suffer at the hands of people we can avoid. We're called to seek peace and pursue it. And if family reunions lack peace, don't go to them. And don't invite them. What are you, a fool? Why would you invite turmoil to your home? Peace is a precious thing. If you got it, don't spoil it. 
And maybe for some folks, they don't know what peace is, so they don't know when they've lost even more of it. They're just used to turmoil in their squirrely head, so they invite more of it. We got to do better than this, church. This has been biblical wisdom for last day's family tension, brought to you by your Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> Let's bow our heads here and pray. Father, I thank you for this lesson from the gospel of Matthew. Jesus, you care about us, and you know we got weird family. We want to see our family in heaven, but we know some of them aren't going to be there. You've called us to be salt and light, but to do that, we can't hide it under a bushel. And some families don't like our light. They're handing us a bushel when we walk in through weird manipulation, through attitude, and through sassy talk. And so, Lord, if they hand us a bushel, we'll just turn around and go home because we're not hiding our light. May we be bold, not rude, but bold. And may we let our light shine. Father, forgive us our lack of voice. Forgive us our complacency. Forgive us our cowardice. May we stand bold for you. Help these families, Lord, I pray. In the name of Jesus, let's pray something together. Father, in Jesus' name, forgive me. Forgive me for being a coward. Forgive me for flirting with sinful family rather than, for con for, uh, rather than confront it. Help me, Lord. Help me win my family. Help me be a voice of righteousness. Help me resolve family tension. And help me glorify you. Help me, Lord, stay faithful and committed to your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.